0: We continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great thinkers, organizers, and revolutionaries in modern history. Today, we'll discuss the role of finance and the big banks. Why does Wall Street reign supreme in the capitalist system? We need a new system. We need a new society deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. If you enjoy listening to this show, Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System: When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r d w o l f f.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, glad to be here. While we're continuing our march through different definitions and categories that are essential to understanding Marxism, Marxist economics, Marxist theory. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of the banks. Now, the role of the banks has shifted as capitalism has evolved, or some might say devolved. Certainly, in 1916, 105 years ago, one of the leading socialists in Russia, Vladimir Lenin, Trying to understand and explain and unearth a catastrophe that had befallen the socialist movement at that time, which was the decision by the socialist most of the socialist parties to not follow their earlier pledges to oppose a coming war between the different capitalist governments. Instead, through the slogan Workers of the World Unite out the window, more or less and under the pressure of war hysteria, marched off with the working class of their country into war to shoot and be shot at by workers from other countries. So it was a grave moment for socialism in August 1914. Marxism, which premised itself on the idea that workers of the world could unite and would unite, it seemed to go out the window because instead of uniting at the time of a war between capitalists, the workers were in fact killing each other. And Lenin was one part of that socialist movement. It was a minority part that opposed the war, stayed true to the principles that had been enunciated and elucidated at earlier conferences of the what was then called the Socialist International or the Second International. But he wanted to understand why this socialist movement had collapsed. And to do that, he also wanted to understand what was motivating the capitalists are driving the capitalists, as he put it, inevitably into war with each other, a war that was so destructive even for their own systems. In the case of Russia, it led to revolution. So he wrote this book called Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, which analyzes capitalism as it goes, as he says, from its competitive stage, which we talked about last week, into a monopoly stage. He identifies different characteristic features of the highest stage of capitalism, as he called it. But he highlights what he says is the new relationship between finance capital and bank capital to the rest of the capitalist economy and identifies finance capital as the dominant form of capital within the capitalist ruling class. Let's use that as our starting point, Richard. By the way, just to lighten this topic a little bit, we could also have started with a quote from Bertolt Brecht, What is the crime of robbing a bank compared to the crime of founding one? That might have been a little softer way to introduce what seems to be a very heavy topic, but let's get your thoughts on the role of finance and the banks in this stage of capitalism.
1: The key thing you said that I want to pick up from is that the role of banks changes as capitalism changes. You could expand it and say that the role of banks depends on the economic system in which and with which banks interact because banks existed before capitalism did. Banks have been around for a long time, have coexisted with a variety of economic systems and class structures and so on. In our world, in the capitalist world, banks found a way to function Uh, to be profitable alongside other businesses, and to make the system more and more dependent on the banks. You know, that's the way an enterprise or an industry succeeds in capitalism by making the system dependent on it. Just like the oil and gas companies, they became important once they were successful in pressing the United States, for example, and eventually the whole world in becoming dependent for its energy on the particular goods that they were able to sell, the particular sources of energy in oil and gas. Same way that other kinds of businesses have become powerful by making us depend on the automobile, for example, or upon electricity, or upon various kinds of chemical materials. This year, 2021, The place to be is the pharmaceutical industry producing vaccines for COVID. Mr. Barla, the CEO of Pfizer, announced that they'd be making a 30% profit on the $26 billion worth of their vaccine they expect to sell in this year. Uh, That's how you become rich and famous, and the banks are no different. They need everyone to depend on money. Now, it's never altogether in the industry's control, but they do everything they can to make whatever it is they're in the business of as indispensable as possible. And for a bank, of course, it's money. And if we can say that money makes the world go round, well, then that makes all bankers applaud because money is what they deal in. They collect money from all of us who put deposits into the bank, whether we're individuals or businesses. And they likewise make money when they lend that money out that we give them. They basically get our money, pay very little or nothing for it, and then turn around and lend it back to us at a hefty interest rate. And of course, they live off the difference. And everybody knows that the banks have been basically quite successful at this, because in virtually every city and town of the United States, if you go to the middle of town, the most expensive real estate, there sits a bank typically made out of marble, and the most imposing structure in the city's center. They obviously are onto something, namely they deal in money. As businesses, and this is Lenin's important point, as businesses competed with one another, the winners not only drove the losers out of business, but usually absorbed them, bought out their used equipment when they went belly up, hired the workers that used to work in the competitors who lost out, who then became employees of the company that won. And as the companies got bigger and bigger, they put more and more money into the banks. And typically, companies that were threatened competitively, went to the banks to borrow money in the hopes of using the borrowed money to buy the new machine or to take whatever steps were necessary to survive in the competition. So the very competition built up business for the banks. But then in one of those twists that Marx loved and that he borrowed from his teacher Hegel, whom we talked about in the past. The banks became so big and the businesses became so big that the relationship between them changed. Instead of the banks serving the businesses, things were reversed. The businesses started becoming servants of the banks. And here's how that worked. The banks began noticing as the competitors became fewer, as the competition heated up so that many companies were reduced to a few. You know, like the automobile industry in America was once 30 companies, and then it ended up with Ford, GM, and Chrysler, only three. And the same thing happened in virtually every other industry. As that happens, the banks get nervous because these very large companies take out correspondingly large loans, and now the competition that made these big companies and that generate a lot of profits to the banks along the way become threats to those profits. The bank is into Company A for millions of dollars. If Company A goes belly up in the competition, they might declare bankruptcy and be unable to repay the bank. So the very competition that built the monopoly industries and built the big banks now discovers that the big banks don't want that competition to continue. It's too dangerous. The losers, when there's only a few companies left, could default on their loans and that could hurt the banks. So the banks turn around and say to the company, we're not going to lend you any more money because it's too dangerous, unless of course you permit us to control you. And here's how we're going to do that. You're going to make room on the board of directors of your company for several members of our bank. We're not going to take your word for how you're doing. We're going to become part of what controls your company so that you're not in a position to hang us out to dry, to make decisions that risk the loans we've made to you. And Lenin is very clever in showing how the banks now become the organizers of the very industries to whom they have lent money to protect their loans. They insist that these companies work together. No more cutthroat competition among you. You're now going to coordinate. And suddenly the public discovers that whether you take their flight on United Airlines or on American Airlines or on you name it, it's within a few dollars of one another. They're not competing anymore. And the same is with the comparable automobiles and the same is with the comparable you fill in the blank. The few that are left in each industry... Are forced to coordinate because the banks don't want to risk losing. And in that process, the banks have gone from the servants of the people who borrowed from them and who deposit into them to becoming the masters. But they were never content with doing that. They wanted to make even more money. So what did the banks do? They took on other functions. For example, When a company wanted to grow, but it didn't want to have to borrow money, perhaps because it was already too deep into debt, what it could do is something we now would call an issuance of stock. They say to the public, you want to become a part owner of this company? Here's a piece of paper, gives you a vote once a year on the board of directors, and you got to give us money to get this right. And so they issue shares of stock an initial public offering it's called, and they get money that way. But in order for that to work, they have to find the people who will buy the shares of stock. And one of the institutions that offers itself up for this, you guessed it, the banks. So they then become stock manipulators. They become a feature of the stock market, buying and selling shares. And so, they make a lot of money doing that, helping companies become shareholder corporations. But they're not content with that either. And in the last 40 years, they branched out into a whole nother area. It's called consumer banking. You see, until relatively recently, banks were not interested in workers or consumers. And the reason was very simple. Workers and consumers don't have enough money to be interested. You can't lend them a lot because they're too risky. It's too dangerous. You can't do it. And so the banks didn't. They dealt only with other companies, with other corporations, sometimes with governments to whom they also lent money and where they became also very influential. But about 50 years ago, they began to see a new frontier, it's called consumer or personal banking. And here's what they did. They realized that while it was risky to lend to the public, to individual workers slash consumers, it could be made profitable if you charge them stupefyingly high rates of interest. These were in years when banks were making plenty of money lending to corporations at 5%, at 10%, but you could lend to individuals at much more, and so they did they lend to people to buy homes. That's the mortgage business. That started in the United States actually back in the 1930s. Then they started lending them money for automobiles. Then they started lending them money for their credit cards. When you use your credit card, you're basically making a loan, but the money doesn't go to you. It goes to the merchant directly with whom you are using your credit card. And then the new one is, lending to college students so they can get a degree and not be unemployed for the rest of their lives. These were wonderful new frontiers in which the difficulties of the American working class, the fact that its wages stopped going up in the 1970s, which of course, and not coincidentally, is the time when we start using credit cards en masse. It's a time when our auto loans go crazy. It's the time when we begin, and then a little bit later really take off, with student loans. All of the difficulties of paying for college, of living in a world where your wages don't go up anymore, those can be at least temporarily solved by borrowing money. And over the last 50 years, American working class became a pioneer, not in going over the prairie in a covered wagon, but in going to your local bank and borrowing more money than any working class in the history of the world ever borrowed before. But it is a childishly obvious reality that you cannot keep borrowing more and more money if the wage, which is the way you ultimately pay those loans back, isn't going up anymore, as it hasn't done for the last 50 years, which is why the whole house of cards collapsed in the crash of 2008 and has never really recovered because we are now a country that doesn't raise wages for people in terms of what they can afford, and it can't lend them any more money because they can't handle the credit they are already overusing. So we are now in a perpetual difficulty which is being resolved, you guessed it, by yet another way that the banks found a way to make money, which is by being agents of the federal government. They become the go-between through which the federal government borrows more money than it ever has in the history of the United States to keep an economy going that's now on credit life support. In the midst of all of this economic decline, the banks shine because they've got their finger on everything. We can't go into the corner store and buy a bottle of mineral water without using a credit card, which gives a fee to the bank. We cannot get in our car. We cannot live in our home. We can't do anything, just like the businesses can. It's called the financialization of modern capitalism that has made the banks the centers of economic and political and, in many ways, cultural power, because they've gathered all of the wealth into their hands, made themselves literally indispensable. We may be able to wean ourselves under heavy pressure off of oil and gas. We may no longer be killing ourselves with cigarettes, but the banks that made money off of oil and gas and money off of cigarettes are now busily making money off of whatever else is on the agenda, on the horizon, for this capitalist system to make use of. So it is the important step always to see how the banks interact with the rest of capitalism Because the bankers will be the ones to tell you, and they're right, that yes, they've been very successful, yes, they've ridden the tiger's back of capitalism to unspeakable amounts of money, but once they were the servants of capitalist industries that were not financial, and that could happen again, that's the bankers' worst nightmare that they will become as old-fashioned and irrelevant to the modern world of capitalism as we now think of the cigarette industry as disappearing and dying, as we now think of the automobile industry, at least in the West, disappearing in favor of electric cars or mass transit, or all kinds of social changes. And you can see the terrible anxiety that the capitalist system creates in the uncertainty that plagues every manufacturer and every service industry, when you can see the hysterical behavior around something that now threatens the banks, namely, that we can work the computer and the internet To make financial transactions with one another that doesn't need the bank anymore as an intermediary. I'm talking about what we call cryptocurrencies. If they become free of the banking system, and let me assure you that the banks are working night and day to prevent that from happening, but if it happens anyway, then the banks see their own demise. They see that we will all be able to give each other small, medium, large loans if we want, work out the arrangements amongst us. Nobody will need to put money in a bank, nor borrow it from a bank, and therefore the whole intermediate position that they've occupied will go the way that we're now seeing malls across America as Americans use the internet to buy everything from Amazon or through Amazon or through one of the other internet providers, what happens to the mall is it becomes a place where weeds are growing through the asphalt parking lot. The fear of the banks, cryptocurrency, or something like that could make us look at weeds growing up through the marble of what were once Thanks.
0: Richard, I'm looking at the Guardian newspaper, the UK newspaper from December 2008. That was like when the financial crisis was still in full swing. I'm going to read a couple of sentences to you. It's the headline was 3 weeks that changed the world. It started in a mood of eerie calm, but then 2008 exploded into a global financial earthquake. Here's the first lines. It was the year the neoliberal economic orthodoxy that ran the world for 30 years suffered a heart attack of epic proportions. Not since 1929 has the financial community, I'm not really sure it's a community, witnessed a 12 months like it. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt Merrill Lynch, AIG, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, HBOs, Royal Bank of Scotland, Bradford and Bingley, Fortis, Hypo, and Alliance and Leicester all came within a whisker of doing so and had to be rescued. Now I'm looking also at a pamphlet that was published at the same time. The Myth of Democracy and the Rule of the Banks is the name of this small pamphlet. The author is Richard Becker, and I want to read a couple of sentences to you because. It's about that same period. In October 2008, the US government rescued the biggest banks, the ones that survived by a whisker, and at a cost of $700 billion in taxpayers' money, it was the biggest bailout in history up until then, the government provided trillions of dollars more in loan guarantees and other benefits to the major banks, insurance companies, and other corporations. A couple of months later, a reporter called around to ask these bankers what they had done with the money. Their responses were nearly all the same. Thomas Kelly, J.P. Morgan Chase, recipient of $25 billion, quote, we have not disclosed that to the public. We're declining to. That's about how they spent the money. Kevin Hine, Bank of New York, Mellon, they received $3 billion, quote, we're choosing not to disclose that. Carissa Ramirez, Morgan Stanley, they received $10 billion. We're going to decline to comment on your story. So it went right down the line. Not one of the bailed out banks would disclose any information on what they had actually done with the biggest bailout in history. Again, that was until then, a bailout that saved the financial system from collapse. Now I'm reading This is from Matt Apuzzo, an article that Matt wrote in the Associated Press, December 23rd, 2008. With that level of arrogance, here they are being bailed out, being saved by a whisker, and at the same time, not feeling compelled to disclose what they had done with the money. And that was during the same period, Richard, that 9 million families were forced into foreclosure. About 5 million actually lost their homes. I don't know, 20, 30 million folks lost their jobs. It was a ruination, really, for a generation, and it hasn't ended. Again, talking about the point that you were making that they look so strong, so omnipotent, they can say, We choose not to disclose what we did with your money. At a certain point, not only do they become financially, you know, there's an alternative, maybe cryptocurrency, maybe revolution, who knows, but certainly their arrogance also becomes, well, let's put it this way, it evokes anger and outrage from people who have been fleeced. Let's talk about that. Yes,
1: it well should. Remember what a bank is. A bank is an institution into which the public, which is individual working people, individual consumers, and individual enterprises put their money. The vast bulk of the money dealt with by any bank is the public's money. The bank only has to put up a small amount of what's called its own capital to get the bank established. So banks are always public institutions, supremely public institutions. And the obvious question that should always have been asked is, with something as important as money, which everybody needs, which everybody deals with every single day, which literally makes the world go round, which is why we have that saying in our language, the question that should always have been asked is, why is something so public? upon which the public depends, allowed to be run for the private profit of a handful of people who are the quote-unquote major shareholders of these banks. In other words, the bank will tell you profit is our bottom line, profit is our number one priority. Indeed, if they were required to answer the question you pose, why are you declining to tell anyone about how you use the money, their only answer, which is an answer they have often given, is we can't give you that information because it might impact our profitability for the public to know that. In other words, the public's knowledge about what's done with the public's money, in this case a bailout is something they're not going to talk about because they have a priority, which is their private profit. You know, in many countries, capitalist countries, by the way, this arrogance, this subordination of the public interest to private profits was considered so outrageous that even the rest of the capitalist sector said it should not be run this way. After World War II, I'll give you an example. In a country I know real well from my, because of my family, in France, the bulk of the banks in France were taken over by the government and run as public institutions. When the socialist president François Mitterrand became the president of France in an election early in the 1980s, he nationalized what remained of the French banks in order that they serve the public interest, since they were the collectors of the public's money and the public was dependent on the money system to do their daily business. So the United States is a bizarre outlier in having the commitment not only to a fully private banking system, but in subordinating the government, private enterprise, and personal lives, all of whom are now dependent on the credit system controlled by the banks. One last point, the crisis continues, the one that began in 2008. Ten years later, the government is pouring even more trillions of dollars into the economy to keep it going than they did a few years ago. I mean, it's never been uh, resolved. And in the last six months, the Federal Reserve has started lending directly to large corporations. It didn't do that before. It lent to banks. It lent to other government agencies. But now it's directly lending to corporations. That's how desperate they all are for the credit that either the government or the banks, or usually the two of them combined, dish out. And the banks charge a heavy, heavy fee and a heavy, heavy price to do it, which gives them the profits with which they can oil the politicians needed to keep this system going.
0: Richard, I want to close out this discussion about the banks with one other element of this. We see the arrogance and the hubris of the banks and the fact that they, as you put it so well, and so, I think so easy for people to understand how they made themselves indispensable to society, but at the expense of society, there's another issue, which is, you know, America has a very, very big drug problem. And the United States has a very big problem in terms of the number of people it incarcerates, 23 million people incarcerated, many of them because of mental health issues, many of them because of just poverty, many of them because of over-policing in black and Latino communities, but also because of drugs. And the banks were heavily involved in drugs. People, I mean, we know drugs are not good for society and we know that people are sent to prison because they're addicted to drugs or they're small time drug dealers trying to survive a crime of survival more or less. Going back to that little pamphlet, The Myth of Democracy, the Rule of the Banks, in March 2010, Wachovia executives, now Wachovia has been purchased by Wells Fargo, but this was after the meltdown the year earlier. In March 2010, Wachovia executives admitted to having laundered at least $378 billion, yes, billion with a B, in drug money from 2004 to 2007, For Mexican drug cartels, the same gangs that have wreaked murder and misery on much of Mexico, leaving more than 40,000 dead, without money launderers, the big bank drug cartels actually can't function. And as you put it, the bank's only criteria is to make profits. So if it comes from $378 billion laundering drug money, so be it. Wachovia got caught. Wachovia had to fold up, Wachovia was bought out by Wells Fargo, and the deal, Richard, was that Wells Fargo would pay on this $378 billion of drug laundering money, I think $160 million fine to the US government, and not one Wachovia executive ever saw the inside of a jail cell. Meanwhile, again, one out of every four prisoners in the world is in an American jail or prison, and a lot of them because of drugs or drug-related crimes, the level of criminality and the level of impunity, the two things going together where you know the bankers are above society, I mean, again, it invites action. And what you're suggesting is that we could, in fact, just do away with the banks. Why have banks involved in this kind of criminal conduct and causing so much human misery for students, for homeowners, and throughout society what's the solution?
1: Well, let me expand a little bit if we have a moment. Sure. The big banks in this country, like those you mentioned, Wachovia, Wells Fargo, but you could add Citibank, Bank of America, Chase, all of them. They've all been arrested, found guilty legally, as well as ethically over the last 10 years of literally every crime any bank could commit. Money laundering is a big part of it, but they were also found guilty of manipulating interest rates. The so-called LIBOR scandal, found guilty of manipulating foreign exchange rates. They were found guilty, I'll mention one, the Wells Fargo Bank, because you've mentioned it already, it was found guilty of having literally created millions of phony accounts so they could bill the people they had created these accounts for, for all kinds of services that they had never requested or authorized. I mean, you name it. The mortgage scandal of 2008 was abetted by banks giving mortgages to people who couldn't possibly afford them. Looking the other way when information was provided, that was clearly false. All of this has been admitted either in court or in published documents. The irony is the banks showed that every trust put into a bank was violated by the biggest banks in the United States. So the idea that we continue to put our confidence in these private institutions, given that they've shown us what they are prepared to do, plus the arrogance of their statements, plus, plus I could go on all night, that's the most amazing thing about American capitalism, that we continue to act. The solutions here are clear. Number one, banks are a public interest. You risk your economy. You risk the crimes I've just described. You risk the meltdowns we've already gone through. There is no way to justify having something so important to the economy as a whole be organized into enterprises that admittedly pursue their own private profit first and foremost. That is an irrational behavior of a society. So we ought to publicly take them over and run them as the public institutions they actually are. And to protect us, we ought to convert them from hierarchical top-down institutions run by a handful of people at the top to democratic institutions. Let's put the workers in the banks in charge, together with the communities that those banks are supposed to serve. Have elected representatives of the workers, together with elected representatives of the customers, individuals and enterprises, together monitor, supervise, and provide policy for the proper behavior of the banks. That would make them genuine public servants. It's what we've done with our political system, which with all its flaws is still a lot better than the monarchies that we used to have. And we still have the monarchies, only now we call them CEOs, and we need to get rid of them and replace them with the same combination of elected representatives of the workers together with elected representatives of the customers because those are the two interest groups that can best serve and replicate and respond to what the public wants
0: richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work he's the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's com. Professor Wolf joins us every Wednesday in this segment. Tomorrow, we'll be back with the Socialist Program where we talk about the real story. You've been listening to the Socialist Program with Brian Becker where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work, bringing you high quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.